Good morning. How many of you have ever heard of Thomas Jefferson's Bible? Anybody? We think of uh, our nation as being founded by Judeo-Christian ethics. In fact, from the very beginning, we have been a plural society dominated by Judeo-Christian values. Thomas Jefferson is a classic example of a libertarian, a deist, that saw Christianity as having value. Well, let's just say he saw Jesus as having value and gleaning from, but saw most of Christianity as a waste of time. He actually took it upon himself to determine what in the Bible was worth keeping. This is a copy of it that I ordered this week just to have it in my hands. Jefferson basically sought to, in his mind, elevate Jesus from the superstitious to being who he thought Jesus was, one of the noble teachers in history. He felt that Christianity had diminished that by adding to who Jesus was. And by the time he was done cutting and clipping, he had dismissed the entire Old Testament, everything but the Gospels, but only the portions of the Gospel that were Jesus' teaching. None of the miracles, none of the eyewitness testimonies, nothing miraculous. There is no supernatural in Jefferson's Bible. And indeed, what he succeeded at doing was to put Jesus on a level playing field with the other philosophers of the world thinking he was doing a noble service. In fact, what he did was wrestle away anything that allowed Jesus to be firstborn over all creation, firstborn over the church. The Word became flesh who dwelt among us. It's an arrogant thing, isn't it? I say that with all respect to the man who influenced us greatly and made possible much of our liberties, but it's an arrogant thing. I've mentioned and read from Eugene Peterson's book several times in this series, and I want to read something that Eugene quotes of Karl Barth. Imagine a group of men and women in a huge warehouse. They were born in this warehouse, grew up in it, and have everything there for their needs and comfort. There are no exits to the building, but there are windows. But the windows are thick with dust are never cleaned, and so no one bothers to look out. Why would they? The warehouse is everything they know, has everything they need. But then one day, one of the children drags a step stool under one of the windows, scrapes off the grind, and looks out. He sees people walking on streets. He calls to his friends, come and look. They crowd around the window. They never knew a world existed outside of their warehouse. And then they notice a person out in the street looking up and pointing. Soon several people are gathered looking up and talking excitedly. The children look up, but there's nothing to see but the roof of the warehouse. They finally get tired of watching these people out on the street acting crazily, pointing up at nothing and getting excited about it. What's the point of stopping for no reason at all? Pointing at nothing at all and talking up a storm about nothing. But what those people in the street were looking at was an airplane or a goose in flight or or a gigantic pile of cumulus clouds. The people in the street look up and they see the heavens and they see everything in the heavens. The warehouse people have no heaven above them, just a ceiling. What would happen, though, if one day one of those kids cut a door out of the warehouse 
coaxed his friends out and discovered the immense sky above them and the grand horizons beyond them. That is what happens, writes Barth, when we open the Bible. We enter the totality of the unfamiliar world of God, a world of creation and salvation stretching endlessly beyond and above us. Life in the warehouse never prepared us for anything quite like this. When we approach Scripture with an attempt to force it into our life, our world, our understanding, so many of us approach the Bible that way. But the problem is, the Bible doesn't fit in your life. Your life isn't big enough, and your understanding isn't deep enough. The Bible is not meant to bring God into our life and world. The Bible is a doorway to bring us into God's life and God's word and the immensity of it. We come into his word. We are transported into something that is wondrous and awe-inspiring that we will spend all of our lives and probably all of eternity afterwards exploring the depths of it. And if you have any other view of this book, it will surely disappoint you. And you, like Jefferson, will find yourself editing everywhere you look in the Bible, ignoring things that are too uncomfortable, dismissing things that are beyond what seems reasonable. See, we're all like Jefferson. He was just bold enough to put it in print and put his name on it, trying to bring the Bible into our world instead of letting it transport us into God's world. So as we wrap up this series, the question I need to ask you is, if we were to be what I'm calling today a people of the book, what would that look like? We're going to look predominantly today at the book of 2 Kings, chapters 22 and 23. It's in the Old Testament towards the beginning. You wouldn't find it in Jefferson's Bible, that's for sure. 2 Kings 22 and 23. I want to describe a a pattern that I believe is observable throughout history. You can see it in the biblical uh, narrative as well. If we were to look at the beginning of the cycle, we would enter into a generation where God's Word had taken hold of their hearts. Out of that is birthed a powerful movement for the Lord. We call them awakenings, by the way. Great awakenings don't come because great preachers persuade. They come because preachers recover the Word of God, and the Word of God changes them. And when that happens, there's a groundswell, the work of the Holy Spirit, people getting right with God. And often out of that come great traditions, new ministries, new programs, evangelistic efforts, social justice efforts. There is a making right that that impacts God's people and then also the culture around them. That's generation one. The next generation comes up raised inside that movement. They pick up the beliefs, the practices, and the traditions, but many of them are unable to go to Scripture and explain to you where they come from. The next generation, because they were raised by a generation that the movement didn't birth out of Scripture, birth out of what their parents passed on to them, so beliefs tend to get set aside by the third generation. But what they continue with are the practices and the traditions. Of course, the fourth generation, 
There might be traditions that are followed, but no belief and no practices. That's the generation that shows up on Christmas and Easter because that's what the family has always done. And when that generation has children, those children are what we call unchurched. The church stops being relevant to them and unbelief emerges. Go far enough down where the faith of the forefathers and foremothers <laughs> comes all the way down to where it's meaningless to people. We talk about a secular society, but we've now reached the bottom of a secular society, and this new emerging culture is actually more spiritual than the busters and the boomers. But they are also post-Christian. The faith of their great-great-grandparents is old and meaningless to them. And so what do they do? They seek other remedies. They seek other solutions. In modern times, those remedies are other faiths, perhaps. But most often, they're the gods, small g, you know, money, sex, power, philosophy, self-improvement. They are the gods that we choose. In the biblical pattern, when this thing that I've described to you occurs... It's actually other gods that generations eventually come after. Now, I share with you that story because it's really the, the, the key to what I want to help you understand. The church is only alive as we produce a generation that will come after us that is committed to Scripture, that is committed to the gospel and the Jesus of Scripture. You could argue, apart from the sovereignty of God and his promise to keep working, you could argue that as far as our responsibility, the church is always one generation away from extinction. We are coming into Second Kings at a time where this pattern has worked its way through 10 generations. Josiah is the 15th king removed from Solomon and the building of the temple. 300 years Ten generations of this progression away. Manasseh was Josiah's grandfather. Scripture records that Manasseh sinned more than any of his forefathers and more even than the original pagans who were in the land before Israel came. And their sins were so great that God punished them by saying, wipe them out. Manasseh's sins were greater. It included child sacrifice. Manasseh actually desecrated the temple of God by bringing pagan idols into the very temple of God. I don't know how or why Scripture doesn't quite record the influence, but Josiah comes up and has a heart for God. Let's look at the beginning of 2 Kings chapter um, 22. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidiah, daughter of Adai. She was from Boscoth. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. Fifteen fathers removed, he was the one that followed in the footsteps of David, not turning aside to the right or the left. Now, we're going to pick up the story in verse 8. The temple needs to be cleaned up. It's fallen into disarray. Money has been taken in through offerings, and he wants to make sure that the temple gets cleaned up. So he sent his secretary to observe uh, the high priest and to get the money. And we're going to pick it up in verse 8. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found 
the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. Think about this. Just think about this. He just found it. And we're all along in the temple of the Lord. We read on. He gave it to Shaphan, who read it. Then Shaphan, the secretary, went to the king and reported to him, Your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and the supervisors at the temple. So to him, his most important thing is to talk about the money. He does his job, and then he goes, Oh, and by the way, Hilkiah the priest has given me, what are the next two words? A book. He's given me a book. Think about this. This is the people of God. This is the temple of God. And the priests are so unfamiliar with the word of God that they don't even know where it is until they go back and start cleaning up. And the people, therefore, are so ignorant of what it was that the secretary that serves the king just thinks it's just a book like any other book. Let's read on. Verse 11. Sorry, verse 10. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. Verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes, tore his robes. And so we see this beginning, this glimpse of perhaps an awakening after generation upon generation sliding, slip sliding away from the commitment to God. And what is it that gives birth to the reawakening, the restoration under Josiah? It's the discovery, the recovery of the Word of God. I want to quickly point out three things that happen when we discover the Word of the Lord. The first thing we've already read, it's in verse 11. Personally, there's revival. In tearing his robes, what he's doing is he's in grief. He's expressing humility. Often, when we come back to God's word, that's the first experience. Because we've drifted so far from the truth. As the door into God's world is opened, and Josiah steps out from his warehouse, his limited ceiling, his limited view of the world, he sees himself, and he's convicted. That is an act of a loving God who often has to break us before he can restore us. Personal revival. Second thing that happens on a corporate level, the people of God, is a a recommitment, a rededication. I want to take you to chapter 23 now, verses 1 through 3. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, regulations, and decrees with all of his heart and all of his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. And then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. Generation upon generation had forgotten completely about it, and when it was found, only thought it was a book. And it only took opening it up and letting it speak for a whole society to be brought back to God. Let me just uh, comment on that a little bit. Darlene and I were commenting a couple weeks ago about whether or not I could sense that this study was motivating people to get into the Bible more. And I expressed to Darlene that I really have no idea. (laughs) 
I don't know. I don't know what this study is actually doing in your life. I can tell you I'm loving sharing it, and I hope it's giving you more insights. But if it's going to really change you, I really have no control over that. I can't talk you into opening the Word of God. I'm not meant to. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. But you've got to obey it. How do you take people who have become so accustomed to having a Bible sit on a shelf? How do you talk those people who by and large think their religion is okay? Who are living inside their own warehouse with their own ceiling keeping them from seeing all that God has for them? How do you get them to open the Bible? Because you can only experience it when you open it. You only see the sky when you walk through the door. You have to just open it. You have to read it. In spite of your fears, in spite of how inconvenient it is to you, you just have to open the Word. And then it'll change you. Just like it did Josiah. And like it did the people of God. And then the third thing that happens. Culturally, there's a recovering of all the things that make a culture great when it's influenced by the things of God. And, and we see that as we move forward into verses 21 and through 23. Now, the cultural recovery is both a tearing down and a rebuilding. Josiah destroys every pagan temple in the whole nation of Israel. And any who rebelled against him, he killed them also. We can talk about that. I'm just putting it out there. That's what he did. He's committed to purging Israel from its idolatry. He removes all the idols that have been put in the temple. And he rededicates the temple. But then finally, he restores something that, according to this passage, hasn't been practiced fully since Israel came into the promised land. Think about how many hundreds of years that is. Verse 21, the king gave this order to all the people. Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. Not since the days of the judges who led Israel, nor throughout the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, had any such Passover been observed. But in the 18th year of the king Josiah, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. And that recovery of the Passover is still shaping the people of Israel today. And for us, that's really important because the Passover is the primary metaphor given to Israel to describe the work of Jesus Christ, who would be the true Lamb of God, who, whose blood sprinkled on the doorposts of our hearts and lives would bring redemption for us and for all who believe. Whew. I get goosey when I just see how these things line up. And you've got to be in the book to see it. Only God could orchestrate that over 1,500 years. Only God could do it. It's beautiful to see what happens when God's people turn. You see this pattern of falling away, sadly, because of our own free will and where it gets us. Yeah, I believe in free will, but typically free will takes us that way. <laughs> and the grace of God restores us. You see this pattern occurring over and over again as God relentlessly pursues his purposes. Later on, 
As we talked about a few weeks ago, when the people of God fall once again into idolatry and they're, they're expelled from the land for 70 years. In Nehemiah chapter 8, we see this coming back to the temple. Again, another generation who has been lost completely, many generations away from this returning to God from Josiah. And they are totally unaware of the word of God. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, as they are rebuilding the altar... The people stand, and for many, many hours, the priests and the leaders took turns reading the Word of God, the narrative and the instructions. And it says all the people, when they heard the Word of God, wept. They wept. And that restoration carried the people of Israel through 400 silent years so that the Passover was still intact when Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem on the very day of the Passover, that people chose their lamb for sacrifice. And it was that revival under Nehemiah that reinstituted this practice in Israel that allowed Jesus to come and offer himself as the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And on the very day, Good Friday, when the lambs were sacrificed, on the very hour when the great sacrifice was made from the Temple Mount, and the shofar sounded in the mid of the day, when the shofar sounded from the holy mountain in a way that all of Israel could hear it, and traditionally everyone paused because they remembered the lamb was dying. On that very hour, Christ hung on the cross, suspended between heaven and hell as the Lamb of God. Do you see what God prepared through them for us? It's just amazing. God's faithful. When God calls us back to himself, where does it begin? It begins with this precious book that you and I take for granted because it's not a scroll just kept in the temple. It's mass-produced. It's in English. It sits on your desk collecting dust. It is that that can transform your life and renew you and renew all of us. And better yet, as it renews us, it can renew this nation. That's how important this is, what we're talking about. What was the Reformation? The Reformation was the recovery of God's Word and a willingness to live and obey it no matter what the cost. See, this is our heritage. It's what God has called us to being true people of the book. What would it look like for us now? I'd like to dream with you a little bit. and I've thought of some descriptives for us, and the four I'm about to give you by no means represent the whole, but especially in the early hours this morning as I was thinking through this and envisioning what we would be like if we became known not just as the Journey Community Church, but if Worcester said those people are the people of the book and what came to my mind this morning were these things. I think, first of all, we'd be a people of conviction and courage, just like the Reformers and others who faced, even in the name of God, persecutors who put them to death and offered them life if they just recant. They knew they couldn't because the Word of God had spoken truth, and they knew they couldn't deny it. We would be a people of great conviction and courage. Second, we would be relentlessly Christ-centered 
and gospel-focused. Even as we showed you today, in the, in the ancient texts that Jefferson said are useless to us, we have found Christ himself in the Passover. It is Christ, it is the gospel that is at the center of this book. If we were people of the book, it would be the first thing out of our mouth. We, like Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the only thing that has power to change lives. And we would believe that. Not because our parents told us to believe it, not because your pastor says it convincingly, but because God's word. Third, we would be covenant keepers. and We would be culture changers. We would keep promises with God and with others. And our integrity would overflow in the culture. Culture would change. Too often Christians are left saying, how do I fit Christ into everything I've got to do with my life? How do I handle my finances with all the things that living in this culture requires that I own? And what we've done is just subtly assumed that culture is what it is. When if we changed our lives, somebody changed, culture would change. I believe that with all my heart. And then fourth, if we were people of the books, we would take it very personally. This would not just be a communal experience. Although, I think being communal is very important. I, I believe and want to challenge you. If we're going to be people of the book, then we're going to see our time together, using the metaphor, eat this book, as the community of faith, when we come together on Sunday mornings, the community of faith around the table of God, about to feast on the words of God. Just like all of us know those times when we sit around a table with people we love and we celebrate the meal and the wine and the friendships and the history, that, as a people of God, we should experience every week around the feast of God's Word. To cherish the sweetness to our lips and to embrace the bitterness in our stomachs as God does His work to change us and transform us. But it isn't just communal. It's personal. Let me ask you a question. Uh, I, 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 and I don't, yeah, I do. I was going to say I don't mean to put you on the spot, but of course I do. <laughs> but I do it lovingly. Where's your Bible? For those of you who brought it, where was your Bible all week? You're just playing games at it. If it's not personal for you, if it's not in your life, if you're not regularly setting aside time, not just to read it casually like some appetizer, but to dive into it and enjoy every savory morsel so that it changes your life, and you need to make time for it. How many of us are desperately frustrated by the condition of our faith, of our relationships, of our, of our finances, of our goals and our plans, and we're desperate for God to do something? We know that God has spoken to us through his word, and yet we ignore it perpetually. And then with our Bible sitting there on our shelves, we blame God for the condition of our lives. It has to be personal. Moms and dads, if the Bible isn't personal to you, it will never be to your kids. I want to show you this little uh, commercial. You remember that commercial years ago about the parent that finds finds marijuana in their kid's bedroom. Here's a little interesting parody on it I want to show you as we wrap up here. Where did you get this? Where did you learn how to use this? 
I learned it from you, all right? I learned it from watching you! Parents who use Bibles have children who use Bibles. A message from the Ad Council. <laughs> yeah. Your kids will never be what you tell them they should be. Worst thing a parent can do is say, do as I say, not as I do. I have three great kids. And as much as I wish they hadn't picked up my negative qualities, they certainly have. As much as I've apologized for my weaknesses and told them don't be like me, doesn't matter. They have been in the classroom of my wife's and my life. And they have picked up all of the weaknesses. And it's interesting to watch them around the table just be inviting me. That's all they're doing. <laughs> How joyful, however, to see all of my kids following Christ. Because in all that brokenness, we, I don't believe we've ever been hypocrites. I think we've always fallen on our knees and asked for grace. Because following Christ is not about perfection. That's hypocrisy. It's about authenticity. It's about growth. It's about progression and transformation. And I believe my kids would say today they've seen that in us. And they've watched God's word opened in our home. I, I'm not saying that except to tell you that it's possible. It's possible for all of us. It's just possible. Your kids will become who you are. And if you have any hope and desire that they will have a vibrant living faith with God, that needs to be true in you, mom and dad. Because that Bible of yours has fallen apart. You've got it open so much. And ink has underlined every page, not marked it out. One of the most precious things I have ever seen is as a pastor presiding over a funeral and seeing a child grab their parents' Bible and read from it from just the passages that were underlined and marked up. When they do that, my job's done as a pastor at a funeral because the sermon has already taken place. That is a better legacy, moms and dads, that you can pass on to your kids than any wealth, any possession, any other accomplishment that you could have. And if you can pass on a retirement to them, that's money, but it costs you the time in this word, then you've passed on something that will die with them. Wow, I'm really hitting it today, aren't I? I feel so strongly about this. I don't want us, at this beginning of our journey, to take a stutter step. I want us to be people of the book. With all my heart, I want that. Another awakening, what we call the second great awakening, one of the great preachers was John Wesley. When we talk about the awakening, we give them all the credit, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, the Wesley brothers. It, we say it was their preaching. It was their love for the Word of God that, that fed, that, that drove them to preach, that changed lives. This was Wesley's comments. I am a creature of a day. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. God himself has condescended to teach me the way. He has written it down in a book. Give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. Let me be a man of one book. Any person in this room that becomes that can change the world. And I invite you to be that person.
So here's what we're going to do. There, there would be nothing wrong if you choose to not respond to this invitation. It could mean your heart's right or you're still contemplating what I'm asking. But I believe God's spoken to people today who know a change is necessary. And I'm going to do what we rarely do here. I'm going to invite you to take a stand for that. I'm going to invite you to actually come down and stand here and say, I want to be part of the people of the book. I'm going to take it personally. I'm committing myself to a deeper relationship with God through the Word of God. From a practical level, I'm going to just tell you, bring a Bible on Sundays. Be prepared to open it. Let the red Bibles be for our guests. Make sure your kids bring a Bible. We've got Bibles for sale out there. Part of the challenge, if you're going to make this commitment, would be to read through the book of Luke between now and Good Friday. Luke has 24 chapters. There are 24 days between now and Good Friday. I'm going to challenge you to read a chapter, take time with it, digest it. What was God saying to them? What are the principles that carry forward? What is God saying to me? And what's going to be different? Take time for that. If you cannot do that over the next 24 days, then you're not ready to make this commitment. If you say, let me get my act together, sometime later I'll have more time, you will not have more time. Life will fill in. You just need to make the space. If your relationship with God matters, time with him ought to matter. And you just find it. So that's what I'm inviting you to do. I'm just going to stand here. Those of you who want to come down and just uh, let us celebrate your commitment to a fresh start with God's word, just come down and we'll pray together. Father, we stand here, um, frail, frail human beings, certainly mixed emotions as we stand here, admitting a desire, an intent to change, a willingness to open the door that leads us out of the warehouse of our perceptions, our limited wisdom, our sense of what is needful and what is right into a world that is so big, much bigger than us, a God-sized world that you invite us into a transforming adventure that lasts a lifetime and then for all of eternity. Father, we're saying we want that life. Give us that life. And we echo the words of John Wesley. Give us that book. May we be people of one book. And may that birth in us conviction and courage. May Christ be central in our affections and in our message. And may the gospel not only continually drive us, but be on our lips to bring others into grace. May we be promise keepers, keeping our covenant, our promises to you, but our promises to one another and to the world around us. And let it be personal for us, Father. Let your word be something that drives our life, that we can't imagine a day without opening it and having our meal ingesting it, letting it change us forever. Father, let us truly be people of the book. No commitment that we make is possible uh, to be kept by only our own strength spiritually. We are falling on your mercy and knowing this is only possible through the strength of the Holy Spirit, through your work in us, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it's in that power and in that name that we dedicate ourselves afresh. In Jesus' name. Amen.